Coming up on Life is a Festival. I think the point is that psychedelics are like a huge gratitude interrupt. And of course, what I mean by psychedelics is I mean psychedelics used in the proper setting, ideally with a very well-trained psychotherapist or a physician or a shaman, somebody who's trained to, to provide a safe, curated experience for you to heal in. When used properly, psychedelics are like the biggest gratitude interrupt that you can have because it overwhelms your body and your mind by disrupting the default mode network that has been used to sustain your ego, your sense of self. This lens that you've seen the world through for sometimes years, decades, it disrupts that lens and just lifts it off for a moment from all of your senses, not just your eyes, from all of your senses at once. And you have opportunity to now see yourself and see the world in a completely unbiased and open way. There's those highways are gone. It's just like open skiing, like eight feet of fresh powder was just dropped on you at the top of the lift and you can choose anywhere you want to go. My name is Eamon Armstrong and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Someone once told me that it is spiritually appropriate to feel melancholy in the fall. And that really brought me a lot of comfort because I've always found my moods to be seasonal. And my moods have gone up and down throughout my life, and I've experienced some deep valleys on my journey. Some experiences that I would characterize as depression. But what is depression? What does it mean? In ancient Mesopotamia, they called it a demonic possession. For Hippocrates, it was an excess of black bile. In the Renaissance, the culprit was witchcraft. In the Enlightenment, it was a weakness in temperament. Abraham Lincoln had a tendency for melancholy. George O'Keefe often wept uncontrollably. For the philosopher William James, it was a crisis in meaning. For Winston Churchill, it was a black dog. I like the metaphor of the black dog. I had Eric Davis on the podcast, and he talked about his own depression. And he talked about how he could hear the dog breathing. You know, it wasn't in the room, but he could kind of sense its presence. I feel that too. I've definitely suffered from spells of depression in my life. And so I'm honored to give you this conversation with my very own psychiatrist, Dr. David Rabin. Dr. David is a board-certified psychiatrist, a translational PhD neuroscientist, and an inventor. Um, and it should come as no surprise to anyone who's listened to this podcast that I've selected a therapist um, that is also organizing the world's largest psychedelic study, which is the Modern Spirit Epigenetics Project. Um, and you'll hear about that on the podcast. So on the podcast today, Dr. Rabin addresses any listener currently experiencing depression. Um, we talk about the myth of the chemical imbalance. We talk about how psychedelics interrupt neural pathways that associate depressive ideation and identity. We cover preparation and integration, nutrition to support mood health, and we finish up with ways to help a loved one experiencing a mental health crisis. Dr. Rabin 
is a psychiatrist, and he's my psychiatrist, but he's not your psychiatrist. And so what that means is that this episode is intended for entertainment purposes only. I really hope that you get something amazing out of it. I think you will. But it's really important that no podcast is a substitute for good therapeutic support. If you're experiencing depression, please get help. It's really such an important starting place. Also, it's important to note that while we talk a lot about the myth of chemical imbalance, this idea that there's an intractable, broken brain issue, um, and the overprescription of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs like Prozac, Paxil, that sort of thing, but we're by no means saying that depression isn't real um, and that the experience of depression isn't a life-threatening ailment that is happening to so many people around the world today. It absolutely is real. It can be terrifying but there's always hope. And part of that hope is to disidentify with the idea that you are and forever will be a depressed person. And that's a huge part of what Dr. Dave lays out from a neuroscience perspective today, which is a huge part of why we're working together. If life is a festival, sometimes we have to learn to dance with the black dog. Patience. It's the most important thing. Patience is the most important thing. You, your patience. <laughs> the heart, yeah, right? Uh, both. both. Actually, yeah, the yeah. patient is the most important thing, and mm-hmm. it is most important that the patient have patience. Right. Patience for, this, for yourself. Dr. Dave. Dr. David Rabin. How do you like to be called as a doctor? My friends call me Dave, my patients call me Dr. Raven, and my family calls me David. <laughs> so you can, either is fine. <laughs> I call you Dr. Dave. Or Dr. Dave, right? Dr. Then, Dave. Do you get Dr. Dave? I feel like that's a nice one. It's a nickname. We were intro- <laughs> introduced by a um, friend of the podcast and previous guest, Dr. Molly. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm the one who insisted that she call herself Dr. Molly. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was like, it's an incredible brand. <laughs> don't be Dr. Molly Maloof, MD. Not happening. Be Dr. Molly and tell me how to party without breaking my brain. <laughs> yeah. That is important. It's important not to break your brain. True. Well, and I guess a big part of what we're going to talk about today is that there's kind of a myth that we have broken brains. Mm. And um, when you are my psychiatrist mm. and I the very first session that uh that we had together we talked about this idea of the myth of a broken brain and i'm so excited to open source that to my listeners and their friends and anyone who could benefit from this work so i'm grateful that you're here and the first question that i always ask is what would a home run podcast be for you what does big success look like uh, well, th- again, just to start, thank you so much for having me, and I'm really grateful to be here. and And I admire you for doing this and creating this this space for your listeners because I think that um, this is I, this is clearly you know very non traditional for me. I've you know I've never done a podcast with a patient before, but I think it's also uh, a real it's really important you know for people to see how these kinds of experiences can be and and I think a home run would be you know to have the list, you know, your listeners really take home something that's meaningful to them that they can, you know, store as like a token or like a nugget of truth that they can carry with them for as long as they need to, to help them change their lives for the better. I think that would be the the home run. Well, <clears throat> may there be many nuggets of truth. Yeah. 
And so just to, just to lay the foundation, um, the reason that I was most attracted to working with you is that you are a psychiatrist. You're also a PhD neuroscientist. You're also an inventor. Um, can you just give us a quick, like one, two punch of your background and what, what gives you the street cred on, on mental health? Sure. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, so I am a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I've been studying uh, chronic stress and resilience and the impact of stress on the body uh, on a cellular, cellular and molecular level for about seven or eight years. And then I switched over to uh, mental health and really looking at stress on the whole person level. Originally, I was looking at things like dementia and aging blindness disorders in human cells in culture, which is really interesting because these cells are the same cells when you die as when you're born for the most part. And unlike most of our other cells in our body that divide, these cells do not. And so they have the most, most robust or strongest stress response, resilience to stress out of any cells in the whole body, which always was fascinating to me um, because, you know, these cells are incredible. They can literally take a lifetime's worth of stress and survive to the bitter end for most people. Um, and so uh, after researching that for a number of years, I thought, what, how many of these things am I learning are actually applicable to humans on the whole? And I started to look at mental health and I started to look at the chemical interactions actually with psychedelic medicines like MDMA and psilocybin, which were at that time being studied in the MAPS phase two MDMA trial with for treatment resistant PTSD, which is showing absolutely incredible results. You know, at, I think two months after the treatment stopped, for those who don't know, two months after the, the MDMA treatment was done, the 12 week therapy with three, three uh, medicine administration sessions, 50, something like 52% of people were no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD after having PTSD for an average of over 17 years that was untreatable by other all other Western techniques they had attempted. And they had attempted at least two each and failed responsiveness to treatment. And with just three doses of MDMA and 12 weeks of psychotherapy, these people were 52% were symptom-free now from PTSD at, um, or basically symptom-free uh, at two months out. What's most interesting though is that five years out, 68% are symptom-free. So they're what, what the, the therapy is, is doing is it's not, it's, it's a totally different paradigm from what we're doing now, where uh, in Western medicine, we prescribe a medicine and we're telling people to take it once or twice a day, every day for the rest of your life, or you will have a relapse. And we tell people that we're instructed as physicians to tell people that if you stop taking your SSRIs, you have like a something like a 50 to 70% chance of having another episode of major depression. Every episode of major depression you have will make it more likely that you have another and so people become dependent on the medicine and externalize their own ability to control a lot of things in their lives, like how they feel and how they interact with um, how they interact with their own ability to heal. And so, seeing what psychedelic medicines like MDMA and psilocybin could do, psilocybin was used um, and had very similar results with one to two doses in treatment-resistant depression, um, which were incredible. And a lot of that work was done. Um, in the U.S. at uh, places like, you know, Johns Hopkins and um, and uh, several other places, as well as at Imperial College of London by Robin Carhart Harris, who did all the neuroimaging studies that showed that the default mode network, this area of the brain that is really critical to maintaining our sense of ego and survival, um, gets disrupted by altered states like MDMA and psilocybin and LSD. And so this gives us starting to give us a sense of how these medicines work by disrupting the normal way that we see the world, which might not be consistent with reality. 
And so it's a it's like a new window into consciousness and a new window into ourselves. And that's what really drove me into psychiatry. Uh, and then I started working with MAPS. And uh, my focus in psychiatry is on P- treatment-resistant PTSD, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. And I usually see the patients that most other people um, are not able to help at that point, or I've had trouble helping them recover. And so, um, so I work with them to use the all the tools around them, medicine, breath work, meditation, yoga, natural techniques with the, at the forefront to, and psychotherapy techniques like uh, empowerment and motivation techniques that really help people, you know, understand that I think as something you were saying earlier is that, you know, you are not your illness. Your illness is something that is a result of things that happen to you. And part of that is something you can control. And part of that is something that you can't. And so by understanding the parts of that that we can control, all of a sudden, you recognize and admit and accept that there are all these things that you can do to make your life better. And all of a sudden, your life will change. And so seeing that pattern and seeing that these things were possible really drove me into, you know, forward in the field of psychiatry and with the understanding that there was hope for people and that, you know, we just were missing. We weren't connecting the dots to, to help people, um, you know, access the tools that allow them to have hope to heal. And so, uh, and so that's what I've been doing for the last several years. And now I am, uh, as of this last year, ex- I am very excited to say that we have launched the largest, world's largest study of psychedelic medicines to compare MDMA, bef- people uh, before and after MDMA, before and after psilocybin, before and after ayahuasca in traditional Shipibo Peruvian settings uh, with a shaman, and then also compared to a, a few other groups looking at uh, what is actually happening on the cellular and molecular level in terms of stress pro- stress response, gene expression, and that kind of thing before and after these medicines are used and actually looking at the mechanism of how these are working um, in thousands of people. So it'll be really exciting to get those results back in a few years. Wow. There's so much there. And I think it would come as no surprise to my listener that I have chosen a psychiatrist who is pro-psychedelics. <laughs> um, you, used, you mentioned SSRIs, and I just want to presence that for those who are not familiar. SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And it's a class of drugs that include the most famous being Prozac, but others, Paxil, Zoloft. Um, I've actually been on five different SSRIs. So... Um, Part of my interest in depression is that I have depression on both sides of my family. Um, I have experienced myself three major depressive episodes. And I really consider depression to be a powerful teacher in my life. And that's a big part of my approach to depression, which we'll talk about today. Um, I had my first depressive episode when I was 18, and I was put on this class of drugs, SSRIs. Um, And I found that they were not efficacious to bring me a joie de vie. Um, at best they numbed. I remember Zoloft made me particularly sleepy. And the big thing is they really ravaged my libido. Like it was really difficult to connect sexually. Um, I have not been on an SSRI, uh, since I was 24. Um, so I've been exploring alternative means since then. And it's been interesting that depression has been a bit of a North star for discovering alternative healing and experimenting with that. So, um, uh, Dr. Dave is my psychiatrist. You are my psychiatrist. And, um, it's interesting. You are, I, we we are, we're doing no medication. So, um, just to presence that for the listener, I'm, I, I use some supplements, which I'll mention. Um, there's a lot about, um, I use meditation. 
I, um, it's a lot of my mindset about these things. And we'll talk a bit about how Dr. Dave has enriched my life with his perspectives on depression. But just to be clear, I, I'm, I'm not taking any medication. And in fact, since Burning Man, I'm totally sober at the moment. Um, not so much yay me, but it's nice to take a break. <laughs> breaks are important. You know, when we take breaks between these, these peak experiences, these really powerful experiences, it, it shows, it allows room for intention to come in and that intention guides the healing process more effectively towards your goal, which ideally is to become better at something in your life in some way or to, or to heal in some way. Um, and when we take breaks in between the experiences, it just gives us time to sort of marinate and learn, uh, and integrate what we've learned from those experiences. And, and I think that that's a big difference between a club or festival setting of a psychedelic and a more intentional therapeutic setting. Um, absolutely. Uh, and we'll go deep into that. There's one thing I want to start with and just hit this really briefly, which is if there's someone who's listening, who's experiencing depression right now, um, I wonder if you could speak directly to them and just give them a little hope and some direction about some steps that they can take right away. And then we'll get, we'll nerd out on a bunch of stuff, but just for the depressed listener or the listener experiencing depression, could you just take a moment to speak to them? Sure. So, I I mean, I, I honestly think you said it best, which earlier, which was that depression is is an incredible teacher right because if you think about depression or anxiety or whatever it is that's overwhelming you in the moment that you're facing in that moment as a teacher rather than an enemy or rather than the why me kind of thing like why is this happening to me if you think about it from the standpoint of of literally what you just said which is that Depression has been a teacher to me. Depression is a teacher. It's trying to show me something and help me learn something so that I can become stronger and better at being me. Then it completely shifts the outlook on how to approach it and what you can do about it. Um, it shows you that, that it, you know, and, and I think part of the, the reason that SSRIs get prescribed, overprescribed and not just by psychiatrists, by family medicine docs and all, all doctors, and why they're recommended as the first line of treatment is because they are a quick fix for people that has n- no serious, for the most part, life-threatening side effects. And so what happens is that people, when you believe that depression is just something that happened to you, because that's what we were taught, not because it's your fault, but that's what we were taught. And you believe that when depression just happens to you, it's because of your parents' genetics, right? It's because of your your upbringing or both, or it's because there's something wrong with you inside that makes that makes you depressed and that's going to lead you to continue to be depressed over time because now you are a depressed person and it starts to connect and you start to connect the depression with your identity. What ends up happening is that that you... Uh, you forget or you forget to practice the idea that depression is your teacher. It's just a momentary thing that might feel absolutely awful in the moment. But if you look at it as a teacher, if you look at it as something you can learn from and that it's a challenge that once we overcome, we will become better, stronger, faster, more resilient people, then the harder that you try to figure that out from a standpoint of self-compassion, and we talk a lot about the four pillars, right? So the four pillars are these ancient principles that have been around for thousands of years from tribal culture, and there's different versions of them, but they've been around from tribal culture to traditional Buddhist culture to Hindu culture, and they're the foundations of building trust in ourselves to facilitate healing, 
to open up our in our inner healer. When you get a cut on your arm, it's going to heal itself, regardless of whether you go to the hospital or not. The difference is how big a scar do you wind up with afterwards. And so, but regardless of whether it's healing on its own or whether you're healing in the hospital, healing can be painful. You know, you have to, the, the inflammation has to come out to allow your body to recover. And so we have to be comfortable sitting with that the pain of the healing to allow it to teach us what it needs to teach us to learn, which is what tribal psychedelic experiences are about. And the four, what are the four pillars? And so the four pillars, which, which are the basis of a lot of these, these traditions are uh, gratitude, self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, which the practice of self-compassion, as we talk about a lot, is really the practice of patience for yourself and patience to allow things to unfold as they will. Uh, and then the fourth is self-love. And, and that has been, by the way, that has been alarmingly helpful for me, this idea of patience in healing and observing without judgment the mm-hmm. experience as it's unfolding. And I'm grateful to say I haven't experienced uh, any kind of prof- profound depression in our work together, but I've certainly experienced anxiety, and I've certainly been dealing with, with trauma patterns that I'm releasing. And this idea of observing with compassion over time really helps to get out of like the head-spinning, mm-hmm. frantic, grasping experience. Yeah, it's it's just a tool. It's an ancient tool for presentness to bring us back down, centered into ourselves, to recognize what we have control over. You know, as much as we think we might be out of control in our lives, we have control over our breath and how much we breathe and how deep and how long it takes us to breathe. And if you practice breathing deeply and breathing slowly, you will start to feel better simply by realizing that, number one, you are in control of something, and number two, that you're showing your body that you're safe enough to take the time to breathe. And there, there's, a, there's a neurological mechanism that happens when you demonstrate to your body mm-hmm. that you're safe enough to breathe. Right. When you breathe slowly, it changes the pressure in the lungs. It changes the amount of air and the speed of which the flow airflow comes into the lungs, which changes the resistance of the blood vessels that go through the lungs to oxygenate blood and get the CO2 out. And so that relationship between the heart and the lungs changes, which effectively causes a change in your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your nervous system that is critical to resting, digesting your food, reproduction, um, emotion control, um, focus, you know, focus and attention control, all of these things that make our lives good, creativity. So for us to, um, for us to feel and be the best that we can be, we want to have balance between this parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for all the recovery stuff, the recovery side of our lives that has to, that only comes out when we feel safe physically, mentally, and emotionally. And then the balance with our fight or flight system, which is commonly increased in activity when we're anxious, depressed, really stressed out with work or family or whatever it may be, or um, suffering from any illness. Uh, All of these things increase activity in the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system, which increases inflammation in the body, and it worsens symptoms in almost all mental illnesses. I want to go back a moment to talking about this idea of the genetic inheritance of um, depression. So for me, um, like I said, I have depression on both sides of my family. Um, My family mythology has a tone of depression to it. And when I first was depressed, when I had my first experience of the color draining out of the room, the story that I was told and that I believed, and I think a lot of people with the experience of depression is you have a chemical imbalance mm-hmm. in your brain. It is genetically, uh, it's a genetic malady that you will have the rest of your life. 
it will get worse over time. And what's most fearful, because I think the depressive ideation is it, there's a temporal distortion. Time feels differently mm. when you're in it. I'll speak for myself. When I am in an experience of depression, I can't remember what it's like not to be in it. It's like there's two philosophical systems. One is not depressed, Amen, full of optimism and joy. Life is a festival, mm-hmm. like let's play. And then there's the philosophical system <clears throat> of this this narrowing of consci- consciousness into an eventual lonely suicide. And there's so much terror in that that then interweaves with the depression. And And the story that informs that is there's a genetic predisposition that I carry for a chemical imbalance. My brain is broken, and the best I can do is take a pill that kind of numbs me a little bit, doesn't really work. The best I can do is take it for my life. And that story itself has been, I think, the the foremost prison of my relationship to depression. Yeah, I I mean, I... I couldn't describe it better. I think your experience is an experience that is so overwhelmingly common, which comes from this idea that we need to seek something outside of ourselves to heal ourselves. And when you believe that you're broken or you believe that you are dysfunctional, right? And that's, and that depression, and that we talked about this before, I think the idea of the way that you describe yourself, right? By saying, uh, you know, what, what you really should to accurately describe yourself when you feel sad or depressed, we should be saying, I feel sad or I feel depressed because that's talking about how I feel right now, not how I felt before and how I will feel. And instead, the, the language and the narrative becomes something more like, I am depressed, I am sad. And am is associated with identity, which means that it attaches to your identity before and after. What did you just say about how you feel when you're depressed? You feel like you've always... It's interminable. I've always been depressed. I always will be depressed. Exactly, right? And so the language and the way we describe ourselves subconsciously affects the way that we see ourselves and the way that we treat ourselves. And so the language is critically important. Um, But ultimately, the truth of the matter is that we we are not genetically... We are not genetically depressed for the most part or genetically anxious or genetically uh, any mental illness for the most part. There are some rare cases where people do have a real genetic predisposition to these things. But I think the critical distinction is that it's not genetic, it's epigenetic. Can you you make that, tell me what the difference between those two are? Yeah, so epigenetic means on the DNA, on the genes. Genetic means in the genes. So the genes are made up of DNA, which we know is like A, C, T's, and G's, right? And these are called the nucleotides that make up the core code, that is the DNA that then gets turned into proteins. And the the DNA is the code that tells the cell how to make the proteins, but the proteins are actually the functional components of the cell that make all the magic happen, right? Like memories. They make memories stored. They make everything else happen. Um, They make the body function, the cells function. So the DNA code is critical to pass on the information about our our background, like, you know, are we male or are we female genetically, biologically? Are we, you know, in terms of how we're going to develop? Like, I got um, those blue eyes. Right. <laughs> right. Like, eye, eye color, size, all those characteristics that we know about are typically encoded genetically in those ACs, Ts, and Gs. But what's really interesting is the genetics, the DNA code that's in your skin cells is exactly the same DNA that's in your brain cells. But your brain cells know to be brain and your skin cells know to be skin because of the epigenetics, what's on the DNA, 
tells the skin cells not to make brain cell proteins and tells the brain cells not to make skin cell proteins. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the, but the epigenetic uh, factors can be influenced by environment, right? Exactly. That's the distinction. Right. So the, so that's the other part of it is that epigenetic changes in the gene in genes change expression of proteins. So things like skin cells and brain cells, the core components of them that make it skin and make it brain, those don't really change that much over time unless you wind up with developing cancer or something like that. However, for all the other genes, like stress response genes, reward response genes, inflammatory genes, immune response genes, all of those genes change possibly on a daily moment-to-moment basis based on our experience being recorded on those genes and how much they change seems to be related, seems to be related to how subjectively meaningful the experiences are for people, which is really interesting because we've never actually known or been able to show that before until about 20 years ago, or maybe a little more when uh, Dr. Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai did some amazing epigenetics work and showed that when you look at the DNA expression patterns, these epigenetic patterns in Holocaust survivors, who their offspring have a clear known predisposition and increased risk of PTSD, depression, and anxiety in the, in the offspring, the sometimes one or two generations down who have been the children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who overwhelmingly have had very safe and happy lives living in the U.S. or wherever, and they sample these people, and they have the same markings on their DNA in their stress, trauma, and reward response genes, stress and reward response genes as the grandparents, as the people who were traumatized themselves. And that's and, epigenetic? And that's epigenetic. And we now know that those exper- th- that, that is replicated in mice. And they show that when they traumatize a baby mouse, then that mouse takes at least four generations to breed out the trauma. So, so the trauma is um, mapped onto the DNA through these epigenetic markers. And a way to think about it would be that you have inherited uh, a predisposition towards a depressive response to stress, but right. the stress of particular types is what's giving the information to the epigenetic markers to affect your biology and create these symptoms of depression neurologically. Is that an accurate way of describing it? Yeah, it's like, so it's, it's like the version of memory that's, you know, when we think of memory, we think of neurons talking to each other with their synapses and things, right? And, but what's actually happening, but this is, but this is like the level of memory that's one step below that or two steps below. It's in the DNA memory, on the DNA memory. So it's the memory of the environment, of your experience that's actually recorded all the way down. And so whether you know, or not, whether you consciously remember it or not, doesn't really matter because we all have triggers of our anxiety, right? We don't necessarily think about it, but even kids are young. You've heard, you probably heard of people say like, oh, that, that kid's an anxious kid, right? Yeah, they said that about me. Right, <laughs> and you might have had, and, and when you were really young, you know, that some people, they can tell that at like two years old, like my, my little brother, when he was like one or two years old, you know, he, was, he hadn't had any experiences yet that were like seriously traumatic that would have made him anxious, but he was anxious, you know, why is that? We don't really know, but, you know, we know it's probably not because he had some serious trauma as a child. Um, he's too young to have anything serious happen yet. And so looking at that over time, you know, what is it that causes those things? And so you start to, it makes you question, you know, how deep is the memory recorded? And now we see without a doubt that it is passed on over the years. I think what's really interesting is that what seems to make these changes most significant 
is very intense, meaningful, negative experiences, right? That is what trauma is. Trauma, which results in lots of different kinds of symptoms, possibly like PTSD, depression, anxiety, even schizophrenia can result from trauma, all different things. Um, And so the idea is how do we get to the source of what trauma really is? Trauma is a really intense, meaningful, negative experience. It can be one or many. Right, and th- and then also your response to that experience, right? Then when we talk about trauma patterns, that's like, and then and then what happens before, right before that experience, but most importantly, what happens afterwards? How supported are you after the traumatic experience? This intense, meaningful, negative experience. How similar to what you told us about, you know, with the time that you first saw saw the color leave the world, that's a trauma, you know, that's a trauma where you gave up at one point in your life and said, I am not, I I can't do it, right? Yeah, I, my experience, I was at boarding school and I was doing an exercise. I was at a therapeutic boarding school and we were doing some emotional growth exercise and I couldn't access my emotions. And I suddenly felt like I was, that I, that I was, there was something broken in my ability to process and experience emotion. And it was just an immediate experience of things kind of shutting down. Right. And, and in that moment, you have this, you have this sense of, it's, it's like hopeless, Right. And, and, and so could it be said that in that moment that if I have um, epigenetic markers that give me a predilection for depression and we could describe this possibly as ancestral trauma, like that it's passed down, this is similar to my father's experience or similar to my mother's experience. And then in that moment, I experienced a stress. And then because of my conscious relationship to that stress, um, that kind of in a sense turned on the 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 genes to create proteins in a way that affected my neurochemistry in my brain so am i right so these are great questions i mean we don't know for sure yet you know we just don't know i could tell you yeah and it would be a theory but ultimately we just don't know all the steps of the process yet we're getting there it's very exciting all the work that's happening right now on this is really exciting um but what we're trying to show is basically what you just said. We're trying to the study that I told you about this epige, you know this large scale epigenetic study with over a thousand subjects using lots of different medicine in lots of different settings. The whole purpose and all psychedelic is, medicine, yes, uh, also uh, predominantly psychedelic medicine. We're also looking at potentially comparing it to some groups of meditators not using medicine, some groups of people doing CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, not using medicine, um, to have a non medicine comparator group. The MAPS MDMA trial has a placebo group, so that's a non-medicine group. Um, And then we'll also have people using Apollo for a couple months and comparing before and after that because people who have... And Apollo is a technology I developed that uses gentle layered frequencies of vibration to to match the resonance patterns of our nervous system to help us be more resilient and adapt to stress more effectively and and accelerate the healing process and access to meditative states. Um, And it's a wearable. And so we see people who have, it was based on the theory of how people cope and recover from PTSD through achieving safety in their lives, which is the most powerful way to help them heal in therapy. And I, having done therapy with a lot of those people, I learned from my patients and I developed this technology to give them something to send home, to send them home with. But we found out that not only did it have great implications for helping these people with trauma, it actually helps us in the real world deal with our normal daily stress. And so we see these dramatic changes in people with severe PTSD that are treatment resistant with just a wearable that vibrates on their body that resonates with their nervous system at a state that boosts their parasympathetic nervous system, boosts their recovery system, boosts safety, 
and results in radical calm within sometimes minutes to two days or weeks, but not four to six weeks, like with an SSRI and without any side effects. And it helps teach people to be more resilient over time the more they use it. And what other medicine does that remind you of? Psychedelics. MDMA. Oh, MDMA. Right? Because that's what MDMA does. That is the result from their trial. Two months out, 52% symptom-free. Five years out, 68% symptom-free. No treatment in between. They're just learning skills to get better. So I want to I want to come back to Apollo at the end because sure. I think that it's a really interesting technology and people are going to want to know how to get one and sure. you know, yeah. but um, and I want to talk about this this it's going to be the largest comparative psychedelic study um, and I want to talk about that too. But to take a step back to this idea of ancestral trauma, um, the idea of that we can heal our minds mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, Recently, there's a lot of talk about neuroplasticity. Our brains continue to change. And something that you and I talk a lot about in in therapy is, um, you know, practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are creating neural pathways in the brain. Um, I think about that in terms of lots of things. Um, uh, pornography addiction is a perfect example of... You, you can know, practice anything. You don't... <laughs> I certainly don't practice pornography addiction anymore. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Um, but you, well, no, you just anybody, anybody can practice anything and get good at it. Yeah. You know, and, you practice and negative and, stuff, you get really good and you practice positive stuff. You get really good at that too. And when you think about I'm depressed, I'm depressed. And that, and I think for anyone who's experienced depression, it's so much a thinking disorder. It's mm-hmm. so much like I, it's going to be worse. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm just, life is passing me by and I'm never going to be good enough. And you're kind of subsumed with regret, whatever your hooks are, they just spin. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how is that? interrupted by psychedelics you talked earlier about how a meaningful negative experience can create a trauma that expresses itself through anxiety ptsd Mm -hmm. depression um is that a similar mechanism when we're experiencing a powerful safe mdma experience or an ayahuasca ceremony so that's what we think is happening and that's what we're again what we're trying to show in this study i think that Uh, Because a psychedelic experience or a mystical experience or a powerful empathic healing experience with a therapist, for instance, or a loved one is really in a lot of ways the opposite of a trauma, right? If a trauma is a very intense, meaningful, negative experience, then all these other healing, radical healing experiences like the things we've been describing are very intense, meaningful, positive experiences. And they seem to clinically reverse the symptoms of trauma or depression if they're practiced. And so... What we and, and and I think it's important to note that when you have depression or PTSD or anxiety disorder, especially if you had it for years and you've been diagnosed and told by a doctor that you have this disorder, then it's important to remember that you have been practicing thinking about yourself as disordered for however many years since you got that diagnosis. You have been practicing a narrative where you see yourself as disordered, as ill, as sick, as depressed, whatever it is. Just like with those words we were talking about before. Rather than thinking, okay, I feel depressed right now. What can I do right now to change how I feel? So the, so the, in, the change would be instead of every time, and we talk about this, right? Some of, the, some of these little um, ling- like linguistic tools, like uh, is it true, is it useful? 
right? When you have a thought that pops, and this is a cognitive behavioral therapy technique. So you, you have a, it's one of my favorites. You have a thought that pops in your head. All your thoughts that pop in your head should be worthy of your time to think about. Your time is valuable. You are valuable, right? So if you're going to spend time thinking about a thought, it should be worth your time. That means that it should have to pass the is it true, is it useful test. So if a thought comes into your head like, I am worthless, even if you believe that is true, it is not a useful thought to ever think about how worthless you are or that you are a worthless person. So it immediately fails the is it true, is it useful test, and you replace that with another thought like, I am grateful for waking up today. The grateful interrupt is my favorite of the things that we've worked on together. It's so powerful. It's such a grateful, it's such an interrupt because it's, it's almost, it's the reverse of the poor me thing. Mm -hmm. Like I was so, when we first started working together, I was so caught in this loop of regret where I was just like, I'm never going to be famous and it's so important to be famous, all this kind of stuff. And you felt like you were not going to achieve your goals. Yeah. Yeah. Forget about fame, but it's your goals and you feel like something's stopping you from getting there and you're, and you're not in control. Right. And that's, that's scary. Well, and, and, and then, and then interrupting that with not only am I grateful for what I already have and just the enormous privilege of my life and the people I've connected with, but I'm actually in fact grateful for this process that is pissing me off right now because of the way that it's seasoning me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a teacher. It's a teacher. My, Mm -hmm. my favorite poem um, by Hafiz is um, very short and he, he says, Don't surrender your loneliness so quick. Let it cut more deep. Let it season you as few human or divine ingredients can. Something is missing in my heart tonight. Has my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolute. It's a beautiful poem. It's a beautiful poem. And what I love is don't surrender your loneliness, let it season you. Um, And I think that what that means is not stay in the pernicious loops of, of despair and worthlessness, but accept the experience of the unknowing, the lonely, the grasping, just be with that and let that season you, the presence of it. And for me, this experience of gratitude is like, okay, this is hard, but what's it teaching me? What's, what, what, what is opening up by virtue of me sitting with the edge of this without, go, without going into the reactive patterns? And I mm-hmm. think the, what I'm trying to interrupt in terms of the neural pathways in my brain that are so problematic is not the experience of loneliness or the sadness or not getting what I want or whatever it is, but actually the reactive looping of identity like, I am this person that's always going to be this way. Life is this bleak and dark thing. Everything is going to be wrong and sad and bad. Right. Um, and then interrupting that by being like, breath first. God, breath, breath first. And then, well, I'm grateful for this experience. I'm, I forgive myself for not doing better in whatever rubric I think I want to apply to this. I have compassion for that. This is hard and I love myself. And then, you know, those four pillars that you talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's what really, that's what really does it for people, you know, in terms of it's, it's just recognizing that as you practice a skill and that could be a skill again, that contributes to depression, like thinking about yourself negatively, um, or thinking about yourself as being hopeless or or thinking about yourself as a depressed person who cannot get better, that if you practice those skills, you'll get really good at them. If you And you will form stronger neural networks 
I think this gets into something we want to talk about also. Yeah, I think the psychedelic the default mode stuff, network. The default mode network, yeah. Right. So this strengthens the neural networks that are associated with thinking about yourself that way, right? So this gets into the biology, which I think is really interesting, is that the biology and the environment meet in the middle, right? It's not that, and the medicine too, they all meet. It's not that it's just one or just the other. It's this idea that when you practice thinking about yourself, and this is uh, from the work of Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering the origins of learning and memory. And he showed that sea snails, 300 million years old, learn exactly the same way for the most part that we do. The more that you practice thinking about something in a certain way, the stronger the connections between your neurons get in that particular network, that particular way of thinking. For us, when we talk about depression, anxiety, PTSD, thinking about ourselves as victims, as traumatized, as us connected to our identity being sick, it ends up strengthening and uh, strengthening this network called the default mode network. In a lot of respects, we see this network associated, associated very strongly with ego, the sense of self that is a sense of self that's very focused on the survival of the physical self, the importance of the physical self, the importance of of identity and status and all of these kinds of things that matter at times in our society, actually sometimes very often in our society, but, you know, for the most part, as long as your survival is taken care of, everything else can kind of go off to the wayside. And so gratitude, and I really like the way you described it as the gratitude inter- the interrupt, right? It's, the, it's this idea, it's like an interception It's of your attention. It's the idea that you can you know, you can continue to practice something down the same cycle over and over and over again. But if it's not working for you, then allow something like gratitude to come in, a practice like gratitude to come in, which is a skill that you can then use to retrain your neural pathways to be grateful for the teacher that will make you better rather than thinking all the time about why me. And then that strengthens the pathways or begins to strengthen, retrain the pathways that facilitate healing through being grateful for yourself, being grateful for the process, right? Being grateful for being able to take the moment to breathe, being grateful that, that's for... The, that's the kicker. That's the kicker. Like, I, my, I, my depression... Being grateful for anger, oh, right? That's Things the one like you that. Get, that that's just, the one you point out to me all the time. No, but uh, not just you. Think about how many people take anger out on themselves, right? The reason that this comes up for us is because this comes up for lots of people. When you hold anger inside yourself, you take it out on yourself, and it's important for us to recognize that there's nothing wrong with being angry. It's just, how do you get it out? You know, how do you get it out in a way that that energy, that angry energy gets channeled into something powerful or creative or constructive in your life? That angry energy could be some of the most powerful energy that we have as humans. And instead, we just look at it as, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't feel that way. And we demean the energy. We demean the emotions connected to it. But you feel that way for a reason. The challenge for us, the teacher that anger is, just like the teacher of depression, is to figure out what the hell do we do with this energy that's so uncomfortable inside us right now without turning it in on us, without letting it destroy us. But you have to, the last thing is that you have to practice it because you practiced years being depressed. You practiced years thinking about being depressed and strengthening those neural pathways that associate your identity with your depression or with your anxiety or with your PTSD or with your anger. And so ultimately, it's going to take time to retrain those pathways. And so that's why patience and self-compassion are so critical because you practiced getting yourself here. So then be patient with yourself to allow yourself to learn new skills, to practice getting yourself out, knowing without a doubt that if you do that, if you are patient with yourself and allow yourself the opportunity to heal, you absolutely will. But you have to know that you can do it and you will.
Well, and here's an amazing kicker about depression as a teacher. I am grateful that depression is teaching me patience. So I, I how move, powerful is that? I know, right? And and what a what a what a clever irony of of the goddess for that. Uh, my experience of depression has been very cyclical and very seasonal. Um, I think a lot of people have experienced what's referred to as sad seasonal affective disorder. And someone once said to me, "Well, you know, it, it's spiritually appropriate to be melancholy in the fall." And I was like, "Oh." And in a sense, I kind of stopped fighting that there was this lull. And the way that I look at it now is that I have a lull in my mood in the autumn. And it's much like the trees teaching us to let go in losing their leaves. Um, It slows me down. It teaches me patience. It humbles me. You know, I have the fire of the summer and I'm going and going and going. And if my system didn't tell me, hey, it's time to slow down, I wouldn't necessarily generate the kind of rich yin energy of the winter to prepare for the buoyancy of the spring. So it's really... In- it's, it's this balance, the balance of the rhythm throughout the seasons, throughout the day, you know, what we sometimes call circadian rhythms, that balance helps keep us connected to ourselves and keep us connected to nature, right? The single worst thing that we can do, I think going along the lines of what we're talking about, the single worst thing that we can do for ourselves is tell ourselves that we're not allowed or supposed to feel a certain way. Oh my God, 100%. And how many of us had that message in various ways as children, you know? um, No, I did. Yeah, I I think a lot of young men, for example, are taught that um, anger is scary and bad. You know, my, my dad had a lot of expression of anger when I was young, and it was very clear to me that, you know, there is no healthy place for anger. We don't get taught that. And depression as well, you know, we get taught this is a disorder, and we're fixing it with this pill. I want to pop back to psychedelics. Um, and the idea of a pattern interrupt, you know, this gratitude interruption is really powerful. And something that I've learned, um, about psychedelics is that it's an interrupt and then you do the work, right? So, um, so psychedelics disrupt those networks we're talking about. So when you, when you, when you build, uh, the strength of your default mode network, this network associated with ego and associated with identity and the connection between identity and things in your life, and the more you spend time thinking about that, the stronger it gets. What that does is it, it's basically like tinting a lens through the, with which you see the world. And the more that you practice thinking about that the same way, the more you get used to seeing the world through those tinted lenses, and the more you forget that there are other ways to see the world. And that's a lot and of like OCD, yourself, right? Oh, yeah, was, yeah all, all, like every, this is the foundation of literally all of these disorders because all of these disorders are based and rooted in anxiety to some extent and ocd included is definitely an anxiety disorder it's now being changed in classification but most of us as the psychiatrists you know and the psychologists don't really think that makes sense um but anyways i think the point is that psychedelics are like a huge gratitude interrupt right it's like if you think of what you know and of course what i mean by psychedelics is i mean psychedelics used in the proper setting ideally with a very well-trained psychotherapist or a physician or a shaman, somebody who's trained to, to provide a safe curated experience for you to heal in. Um, when used properly, psychedelics are like a huge, the biggest gratitude interrupt that you can have because it overwhelms your body by, and your mind by disrupting the default mode network that has been used to sustain your ego, your sense of self that you've seen this lens that you've seen the world through for sometimes years, decades. It, 
disrupts that lens and just lifts it off for a moment from all of your senses, not just your eyes, from all of your senses at once. And you have an opportunity to now see yourself and see the world in a completely unbiased and open way, or as completely unbiased and open as you possibly can, without the constraints of those old networks there that you had to travel down to get access to your thoughts. Now, there's those highways are gone. It's just like open skiing, for like eight feet of fresh powder was just dropped on you at the top of the, of the of the lift, and you can choose anywhere you want to go. That's what this is. That's what psychedelics are like for people well, when used properly. If you look at those amazing brain scans from Imperial, Imperial College mm-hmm. London, you see that you know there's the default mode network. And there's places lit up that represent this egoic thought. You know, when you're just sitting and thinking about myself, thinking about the future, and then under the influence of LSD in those scans, you and see psilocybin. and psilocybin, um, you see activity across regions that don't usually form networks and mm-hmm. that's that creates like temporal distortion and synesthesia and mm-hmm. all these wonderful yummy bits of the psychedelic experience are actually it's not that you've taken a drug that makes you see shit or it's, that shuts down your brain or that shuts down your brain it actually lights up your ability to make all these different connections instead and it's and as, increasing neuroconnectivity and it's increasing the functionality of your brain of our brains like it's literally making us better by growing our consciousness chemically and spiritually which i think is really interesting and science is now getting to a point where we're able to show that through the work of imperial college and some of these other great folks like we're actually starting to see this stuff so what's the deal with ketamine? I, ketamine has recently become the darling of experimental therapies for treatment-resistant depression. It, it works on a... Uh, an NMDA. An NMDA, yeah. An NMDA receptor, which... Yeah, not which aff- serotonin directly. Yeah, it affects glutamate instead of serotonin, dopamine, Directly, and yeah. It probably does affect serotonin. I mean, from a, pharma- a pharmaceutical standpoint, like a pharma- and, and I think it's important to talk about because the pharmaceutical companies have, have shifted the way, and, and again, for us put a lens over the way that we see medicine particularly as doctors they fund a lot of medical education and ultimately the whole idea that you could take a pill and make your depression go away ever was something that was not put out by psychologists it was some and therapists it was something that was developed by pharmacologists and by the pharmaceutical companies because it's something that if you can convince people that their brains are sick forever and they're required to take a medicine once or twice a day for the rest of their lives, that's a whole lot of income from that one person. Multiply that times 300 million people worldwide that have a diagnosis of depression, right? That is a ton of money. So it's important to recognize that there has never actually been demonstrated ever in any study that there is this neurochemical imbalance that's detectable in the brain. But we do know through the work of Eric Kendall, like we're talking about earlier, that when you practice thinking about yourself a certain way, you will create an imbalance in your brain that needs to be fixed by reversing that thought process and reversing that behavioral process. Um, but the ketamine is really interesting because ketamine is a, is a way. So ketamine is the only legal psychedelic medicine right now available pretty much that is commercially available. So you can literally, if you have 250 to $500, depending on where you are in any city, you can find a doctor who will give you a ketamine infusion or an injection. Um, not all ketamine experiences are equal, just like not all psychedelic medicine or therapy experiences are equal. It's important to have the proper setting. Um, it's important to have integration prep preparation beforehand with the therapist, ideally somebody that you already know, but if you don't know somebody who's willing to work with you with ketamine and do, uh, do therapy work, 
then and do the prep and is familiar with it, then a lot of clinics, some clinics will have therapists there that can work with you. And I definitely recommend you finding somebody to work with before and after the experience, because when you take a little bit of time to prepare for what you're going to experience going into the ketamine session, as with any therapy session or any psychedelic experience, you get more out of it during because you have an idea of what your goal is and what you want to achieve with the experience and what the experience means to you. And then afterwards, you have a whole bunch of therapy sessions in between that and your next session where you start to work on some of the things that come up. Um, And again, this is basically the protocol that we use for MDMA with PTSD, and it works wonders for people, and it doesn't require them to take medicine every week or every two weeks or three doses. Ketamine might be a few more doses, but because it's because the uh, experience is only 30 to 60 minutes long. So it's a very short experience. It's generally very safe. Um, it, it has great results for treatment resistant depression. No doubt it's, it's done very well. Um, but it's important to take the time to find somebody who can combine this, you know, curated therapy experience with the prep and the integration afterwards with the medicine itself to get the best effects. Um, and you're, you, you're organizing a study around multiple different psychedelics, which I think is a really interesting thing because something that you've pointed out to me is that since we know that psychedelics actually work differently, that there's a whole class of, of medicines called psychedelics and they actually kind of work slightly differently in the brain, whether it's mescaline or the DMT Mm -hmm. from ayahuasca or whatever. They're all molecularly different. They're all molecularly different. And yet they're having a similar effect on the brain and that that's a really interesting that's an interesting thing to note when we're kind of busting the myth of the chemical imbalance mm-hmm. that and and kind of replacing it with examining this neuroplasticity of of thought pathways that then get interrupted regardless of the me- molecular structure of what is kind of destabilizing this this default me- mode network. Can you tell me what are you exactly studying and um, how are you doing it and also how can the listener support your study? Sure. So we're so what we're doing is we're comparing what you said. We're comparing the the effect of the medicine to or a bunch of different psychedelic medicines that have different mechanisms of action to which have all been used traditionally or currently to treat trauma or some disorders related to trauma. And we're comparing those to each other and in in subjects before and after their experiences. We're collecting DNA samples from saliva to compare and then we're looking at um, what the what the results, what role the results are due to medicine and what is due to the intention or the set and setting of the experience, the ceremony, whatever you want to call it, um, the intention to heal part, the safety part. Because we know that if you use MDMA or psilocybin or any of these medicines at a rave or a party or a festival, you could have a really great experience, but there's also a really good chance you could have a really hard experience. It depends on the festival. Totally you know, depends. Coachella is not the best place to roll. <laughs> Actually, no, it's probably a pretty great place to roll, but it's not the place to do your childhood trauma. Right, exactly. And, and, and what, what the thing about psychedelic medicines are that you don't necessarily know what's going to come up when you take them. You don't necessarily know that um, something very traumatizing might surface when you're in a public place, you know? And so it's really important to be careful and respectful with the medicine uh, and to have the best possible situation set up where you feel really safe to let all of this stuff come out. Um, not knowing what's going to come out, but knowing that whatever comes out is coming out for a reason to help you heal. 
I want to give a quick shout out to the Zendo Project. Um, The the Zendo Project, which I've been volunteering with for the past five years. Sarah and Ryan. Um, Yeah, Sarah and Ryan. um, Sarah's actually at the SLN conference right now. I just saw her in Pittsburgh at the SOAP conference. Oh, nice. She gave a Zendo training. We're we're trying to find time to get her on the podcast. Oh, um, nice. yeah, she's yeah. great. She's so good. She's so smart. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Zendo. What Zendo does is it creates a safe space at festivals and similar events. Burning Man, um, where someone having a difficult psychedelic experience can come and have someone sit with them. And um, so, if you are at one of these events. If your friends are going through a difficult psychedelic experience, Zendo is a great place to take them. And um, to Dr. Dave's point, a difficult psychedelic experience, it's not like a bad trip where something bad is happening to you per se. I mean, maybe with some complications of other substances. But in general, a difficult psychedelic experience is actually, most often in my understanding, a release of trauma. You're actually processing something inside you. Right. And when we resist those experiences because we're not comfortable allowing that to happen, that's when we have a bad trip. It's when we resist what is naturally wants to come up. When we resist that and we put up walls and we say, oh no, you can't come up here. I'm hanging out with my friends. And all of a sudden you realize that you don't really have a choice because you're in an altered state and you're open and you don't necessarily have the ability to tell that not to come out. Well, and, telling and so you it have not to work to, through it. And telling it not to come out, that's your default mode that's network. That's your default mode that's network. Your that's your identity of self as I'm a man who doesn't cry. I'm a leader. I'm exactly. strong. I'm stoic. Whatever it is that right. you're telling yourself, telling yourself, telling yourself. And then the psychedelic comes in and says, well, what happens if these all these walls you've constructed are just wiggly, flimsy things, and you actually have to deal with the bubbling up of something that's been waiting all of this time for you to release. And of course, it's terrifying. It's a horrible thing to midwife trauma. But at the same time, better out than in. Right. Like, get that, move right. it through you. And the Zendo Project, thank you for what you do. Thank you for all the volunteers who work with it. Create a safe space where they simply, they just sit with you and let you do the work and let the wisdom of your own body release. Right. And yeah, and, and, the, and the Zendo Project folks have done a really amazing job helping people get through some of their harder experiences in, in these public situations at festivals and events and things like that, which can be very difficult. And I think, but, but the, the, I guess going back to the point of what we were talking about is we know that these things can happen when you use them in non-traditional or party type uh, situations. And then we know the kinds of radical healing effects that you can get when you use them in a ceremony or a curated set and setting with therapists, like in the MAPS trial or in the psilocybin trials. And so if, if that's the case, then is it the medicine? If all these medicines heal trauma, if MDMA is the most current treatment for trauma, ayahuasca is the, and psilocybin are the oldest treatment of trauma that are eight to 10,000 years old used by tribal culture. When you talk to the tribes, people, they say we're treating trauma and that's what happens when you actually go down there and experience it. And people use peyote and mescaline to treat trauma. They use ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT to treat trauma. All over the world, people have been using these ancient medicines to treat trauma. They're all, again, as you said earlier, molecularly different, right? If they all are molecularly different, having different actions on the brain, but the results clinically are very similar or the same, and then we see on the DNA that it's the same. We see that they're changing, making similar changes to the epigenetics of stress response genes, of reward response genes, of cortisol genes, epinephrine. It, you genes, can test that? You can test yeah. an effect on the epigenetics? That's what, yeah, that's what we're doing in our study. So we're going to look at that before and after people go through their psychedelic treatments. First, ayahuasca, it's going to be you have to go for at least 10 days. It's going to be 
You just give us a saliva sample before and then a saliva sample at the end of 10 days or longer. I've told you I volunteer for that, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I volunteer. I will do 10 days <laughs> of ayahuasca work to help this important study. Well, we, really, so you know. we really appreciate that. I mean, this depends on people like you volunteering to do it because it's part of what's really unique about the study is it's a completely volunteer and charity-based study. We're really trying to um, remove the stigma from these things by independently bringing scientists together who are very skilled, very respected scientists. Ben Kalmendi at Yale is partner on the study and uh, Rail Khan at USC and Joe Tafur, who's one of the leading Western experts in ayahuasca. And we're really looking at, you know, making this accessible to everyone. So we're raising the money currently through a charity fundraiser um, that you can find at modernspirit.org um, and through our, you know, all of our Modern Spirit social and Facebook and that kind of thing. And we are... Um, and we're also doing opening the study up, unlike any other study that's been done before, where literally anyone can participate. So what we've done is we've partnered with clinical trials that are ongoing FDA trials in the U.S. and uh, pre-FDA trials in the U.S. that are already approved to give psychedelic medicines to subjects in a clinical setting. Highly controlled, highly scientifically rigorous, oftentimes double-blind and randomized placebo-controlled trials. We're working with those people. We get before and after data from all those people. In the MDMA trial, it's before the 12 weeks, and then after the 12 weeks, we get a sample. And then we'll do every couple months or every six months after that just to see over time how long the effects last. The point is, if all of these medicines are inducing similar changes, MDMA and ayahuasca and psilocybin, if all of them are inducing similar changes to the gene expression patterns and clinically, which we already know they are doing clinically, then it's not the medicine, guys. It's the intention to heal that the, that the subject that we have going into the experience that's facilitating the healing process and that's actually making the healing happen is you. And, it's the, and the medicines the get medicine you out of is, your own way. The medicine is the catalyst. The medicine, just like Apollo, just like meditation skills, just like uh, um, any of these other tools that we have access to that help us have an altered state experience, right? These things are tools that help accelerate the healing process. They are flipping a switch that allows us to heal faster by breaking down some of the barriers that we put up to healing. They're not doing the healing for you. And that's critically important to understand. You, we have to heal ourselves. You, we, as a psychiatrist it's, and a doctor, it's the most important thing to understand is that we cannot heal our patients. You know, it's very difficult for us to work with people, many of whom oftentimes do not get better or do not get much better for an extended period of time. And so we have to accept that we cannot heal people for them. We can give you all the tools and all the support that you could possibly want or need to heal. But ultimately, the decision to heal has to come from within us. It has to come from within us as individuals. And that's what this study is showing. And then we're taking it one step further and we're applying all the same psychedelic medicines that I just described to you that we're giving to, that, that are being given to humans. We're applying all those medicines to human neural stem cells and culture with our collaborators in Brazil. And those cells, regardless of what you might think, don't have the same sense of ceremony and set and setting as we do when we're getting a medicine treatment. And so when we actually just apply these to the cells in, a, in an incubator in a lab, we'll be able to show the comparative epigenetics between those which have no, basically no understanding of ceremony to the way that human epigenetic changes with ceremony. And we'll be able to really parse out what is the medicine role on the epigenetic level and what is the role of intention and ceremony. 
and we want and the idea being let's show the interface let's really visualize for for western science right let's show the interface of science and spirituality let's show the interface of western and eastern medicine because that's where true healing occurs it's not here or there or black and white it's a, it's a it's a spectrum and everything is a spectrum and healing included and we need to find the middle ground we need to find the middle ground between yin and yang between male and female between eastern and western where healing is able to occur and that's balance right that's that's we talk about in our this is what the four pillars train us to do this is what apollo trains us to do this is what psychedelics train us to do what meditation and deep breathing train us to do they train us to bring ourselves back into balance and so by practicing any of these techniques using any of these tools to bring ourselves back into balance we can maintain healthy happy lives and keep ourselves symptom free for hopefully many years but it takes practice and so we're going to prove it once and for all damn, you have a cool life. I was just thinking about that. Just like, well, and now we're going to work with the stem cells with our team in Brazil. I was like, fuck, <laughs> should have studied science instead of fabulousness. No, it's I'm never too late. Uh, you know, you we, know but, what? We but, all have our role to play. And that's right. We need people like you to do what you're doing. You yeah. know? Like I mean, this is my job. I do this stuff and you, and you work out the science and make, and keep my brain healthy. Right. And then we all, you know, we all get to hang out and, you know, share this, the wealth of information that we get from our own and the lessons we've learned from our own different you know, areas of life. And then we learn from each other. And it's about, you know, bringing the, the different disciplines and the knowledge together. Everybody has their role. You know, everybody has an important role to play in this, in this path. Well, and, and this brings us to kind of the last section of this conversation and the thing that I actually am most interested in. I love psychedelics and I've loved them for a long time. But what I'm most interested in is the integration of these peak experiences. This podcast, Life is a Festival, is about making our life in this open-hearted, experimental, joyful way. And um, the gratitude interruption is an integrative process. Mm -hmm. A psychedelic interruption is not an integrative process. A psychedelic interruption is... It's a little too disruptive. It's to too disruptive. And you, for and, most people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the integration is what happens after the psychedelic. Right. Right. And I think that one of the things that happens with festival psychedelic culture is you can you can fall in love with the blinky lights and the fireworks show. And if you keep drinking at that trough, it may, that water may become brackish. And I think with ketamine specifically, that's one where there is some, some risk of abuse more so than you might with an LSD. But any of these things, if you keep shooting yourself out the cannon, eventually you're, you're really going to deplete your, um, your, bevy of yummy brain chemicals. And so in order to make the most of these experiences, and ultimately the work of becoming symptom-free in terms of depression, really healing from this, comes in the integration. And so for the last section of this, I want to just talk about what does integration look like? What are the daily practices? Um, I want to talk about a couple of different things. I want to talk about meditation for sure. I want exercise, sleep. One big thing is nutrition because I know that, that you know, having the right, um, the right ingredients for your neural substrate is going to really affect the qualitative experience. Um, and then the last piece is community festivals coming together. And all of these things form a piece of form, different pieces of our ability to integrate a better way of living. Once we've had this destabilized default mode network. Um, 
So where would you dive into if someone is healing from depression, if someone is approaching these different, you know, if maybe using psychedelics, maybe using other approaches, what's the day-to-day upkeep in terms of what we're putting in our body and what we're doing with our body to, to be the most robust and connected with the world? So I think the, there's two parts to this answer because one of the parts you left out is, is preparation. And the preparation is not hard, but it is critical. Okay, let's do preparation and first. I'll do preparation first, and then we'll do integration. So preparation is critical for one main reason. And if you forget everything else, this is the one thing that you should remember about preparation. It is that medicine is not an escape because there is no escape. We're here for the time that we're here. And when we die, we'll come back here again or somewhere else to another world in, you know, the universe. And, and, but we, we, our energy is eternal. And you can, we, you know, maybe science hasn't demonstrated that yet, but it has demonstrated there, there is a conservation of energy and that energy is eternal. So, you know, science and spirituality pretty much agree on this, on this topic. And ultimately, when you use a medicine, you, it needs to be used from the standpoint of using it to connect with ourselves and our, and our environment rather than escaping from ourselves and our environment. And what happens is that when you use a medicine that to escape, even if it's a medicine that typically doesn't facilitate escape, like a psychedelic medicine, but people can use them in, at things like festivals where the people or raves, people will overuse some medicine and they'll feel like they'll get, like you said, distracted by the glowing lights and the, and the excitement and all the music and the sounds and the stimulation because it's so much better in that moment for them than it is in their regular day-to-day life. And the message to take home from that is not that you need the psychedelic medicine or you need this, these kinds of experiences to make your life better, to escape from your day-to-day life. What it sh- what the message it should be that life is a festival, right? The message should be that I want to learn every single thing that I can from this experience to try to make my life more like this. I want to be able to feel this way all the time, right? And so if the medicine is doing that by just creating, and the medicine, not just the medicine, but the medicine plus the ceremony or the setting, set and setting are doing that and helping us feel this good or this whole or this connected and loving and whatever it is, self-accepting. If the medicine is helping us doing this with the ceremony in such a way that I'm feeling this much better, what can I do? What can I learn? The challenge is, what can I learn from this medicine and take into my life to make my life this good all the time? And so how, how, as long as you do that prep, then you will have a much more powerful experience when you do the medicine, whatever medicine it is in the, setting, in the ceremony. And then afterwards, when you integrate, the integration process will have a context right? So the integration is about establishing context for what you learn in the med- with the medicine to take those teachings, to take what you learn from your teacher. And that teacher might be, ket- might be ketamine, it might be the therapist, it might be depression, it might be all three, right? But to take what you learn from that experience, and then with the context coming in of, I'm going to figure out everything I can learn from this to take with me when I leave to make my life like the way I feel when I'm having these experiences, then all of a sudden you start to do that much more quickly and easily Mm. in the integration process. Your brain is primed for the intentional goal of manifesting. What does psychedelic mean, right? Psychedelic means mind manifesting, right? So literally what we're doing with this preparation, this integration is setting yourself up to access a different plane of consciousness or a different way of perceiving yourself in the world to gain insight to learn from 
yourself and the world in a way you haven't before or maybe not for a while and then literally pull as much information as you can download as much goodness as you can as much gratitude and and love as you can and take that back with you into your regular life and manifest it make it real make it happen and and what i love about this is if you do this process it turns into service as well because what makes your life more like a festival what makes it better is in part community and Mm -hmm. service and connection you know um i'm gonna this is a nice time to, to touch on this um uh johan hari uh came out with a book called lost connections um and this has really made kind of a splash in terms of depression he wrote a great book about addiction this is a book about depression and he um he's famous for um upending the rat park experiment or no no no, upending the rat experiment by creating rat by doing the rat park experiment so basically what he said is we've long thought of addiction a certain way because we had these rats and they and they would take drugs until they died. But what we didn't recognize is these rats were in super boring, awful environments. When we put them in rat parks, they didn't take the drugs yep. and they didn't die. That's incredible findings in terms of depression. Context matters. Context matters. And incredible findings in terms of de- of depression as well. So Johan Hari, in his book, Lost Connections, talks about nine factors um, that uh, influence depression. Two of them are biological. Seven are, are psychological. And I'll just read them quickly here. We've talked about them already. And they're all... It's all disconnection. Disconnection from others. Disconnection from childhood trauma. Disconnection from meaningful work. Disconnection from meaningful values. Disconnection from status. Disconnection from nature. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. Nature is really good for this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, disconnection from a hopeful future. And so when we're talking about life as a festival, we're doing the work on ourselves, we're creating our own life like a festival, but in order to do that, festivals are in community. The experience of exaltation in communitas, the modern congregation of Burning Man, this is a group experience. We are we are tribal organisms that function best serving and taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. So for me personally... Where, our, where, where other people's strengths, our friends' strengths can make up for our weaknesses and teach us something and help us all grow together, right? The whole the whole goal of all this community stuff is to build connection, to build trust within your, within your group so that we can all grow together. And, and, and we honestly, for me with depression, when I think of depression in the most fearful way, it fundamentally comes down to disconnection and loneliness. I was in an ayahuasca ceremony once and I had this little mantra that bubbled up into my mind, which is my ego is the part of me that believes that I am not a part of everything else. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like that is such a good way to say it. That's yeah, exactly right. In the default mode when you're stuck in that default mode network. I need, to, I, I, I got to protect myself. I, I can't trust the world. I can't trust other people. Versus in community, in connection, and of service in a way that really truly brings you joy. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to work with depression is service. Mm-hmm. Is is getting out there and and supporting other people. Um, and it's building meaningful connections to others and to our environment, which then helps facilitate building more meaningful connections to ourselves because it spurs gratitude. It spurs these, you know, these, this increased sense of familiarity and safety that helps us feel whole and allows us to really be our, our real selves and let that real self version of us out on a more regular basis. Ideally all the time, we should feel comfortable just being right. That's the whole goal. And a few other of the integration things I want to touch on, kind of, and I'll touch on them briefly. Because oh, we can go into that from yeah, from what you were just yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
a couple of the integration and just different ways of approaching depression, um, which you can do, which don't have anything to do with psychedelics. I mean, all of this is valuable. Um, meditation. Yeah. Uh, I have been meditating now for seven years, pretty consistently. I've, I've done a Vipassana. Um, and one of the things that happened with these Imperial College London studies of LSD is quite serendipitously, so the story goes, um, they actually accidentally compared their data with long-term meditators. It, there was some like it, like across the Atlantic connection where it just sort of sparked that they're like, let's look at the data. And it was the same. What was going on in the brains of those individuals under the influence of LSD were the same as these 20-year advanced meditators. And right. what that tells us is that the experience of meditation is an experience of releasing, you know, it's the work of releasing this default mode network. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, and and that medicine is a tool to help speed that process up. You know, we call in chemistry is a, or biology is a catalyst. It helps speed up the process of accessing those altered states of consciousness. And the, but the, but the point is, I think, and from that particular article, which was phenomenal, is that altered states of consciousness, like what we experience with psychedelic medicines and meditation, are completely natural. These are not strange. I mean, they're strange to us because we haven't spent a lot of time in that they're state. They're definitely weird. Right. <laughs> but they're actually, in large part, they might be more real than our day-to-day that we've constructed for ourselves. If you, if you take the reducing valve theory from Aldous Huxley, they are more real. Um, one of my favorite ideas about psychedelics is that um, the brain is a reducing valve of consciousness, mm-hmm. which makes sense in this default mode network idea. Um, and essentially, psychedelics widen this valve, and you get... If you're running from a bear, you need to have like a pretty clear, narrow view of what reality is. But if you're just sitting in a meadow with your legs crossed, it might be pretty nice to open yourself up to full-on God consciousness and that psychedelics are actually they're not bringing anything new in they're actually just re- letting go of something that they're is removing fixed. the filter they're removing the filter that we normally would filter out all that stuff they remove it for a temporary amount of time but so does meditation right that's what's so important is that it's natural and that's and that's where apollo comes in right so meditation deep breathing integration are all critical to integration um those practices are critical to integration just like yoga just like um, biofeedback, just like positive, positive thinking and positive behavioral change, nutrition, all of these things are important to integration because a regular exercise, they all balance the autonomic nervous system. They create balance between the fight or flight system and the recovery system, which is critical to being resilient. Remember, balance is at the center of all of this. It's the center of all healing comes from a balanced place. And so part of the reason that we developed the Apollo technology is that Apollo induces in the body uh, through the skin a sense of stim- uh, a sense of uh, deep breathing or meditation that you same sense that you would get with deep breathing or meditation by sending safety signals from the skin to the brain, just like somebody holding your hand or giving you a hug. And when we, it doesn't by no, it by no means replaces intimate touch or soothing touch from a loved one. But for those of us who can't have that with us all the time, which is most of us, it allows us to gain some of the core benefits of touch without having to have somebody with us to hold us at all times or to have to listen to music, which oftentimes supplements for that. Having music around or having soothing environments around can help us calm down, wrapping ourselves in things like blankets and whatever it is. You know, these things make us feel good. So... 
when we can't have those and we haven't mastered meditation or deep breathing yet, we developed something called Apollo that you can now use to get that same benefit. And we see now through our, our we've done multiple trials at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, the most recent trial, which I think you'll find really interesting given what we're talking about, is we wanted to see something similar, right? We saw that when we gave Apollo to expert meditators that they were getting to extraordinarily deep meditative states very quickly. There were a couple people that said that they had full-on DMT experiences within 12 minutes. Wait, 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 you can do that with it? I've there, had one and I haven't gotten that yet. What setting do I put it on? <laughs> those settings are not publicly available yet <laughs> for obvious reasons, but... It's not public. The, the Apollo technology is not publicly out, right? It's, it's I, for you pre-order. have a beta one. For it's me. available for pre-order. Okay, so now, so if you want, so there's a 45% off discount for all of our our early adopter friends, people, friends of your podcast, and friends of our us and the beta testers, and uh, you know the conferences we go to recently lately. Uh, there's a 45% off discount on the website. We'll have that in the show notes. ApolloNeuro.com, and you can check it out, and um, and then it will be on sale officially for January. And we'll be shipping are, are, wait, but you're serious that people were expressing that they had a DMT, like full-on hallucinogenic experience? Because oh, yeah. I, again, I'm not joking. I would like to know the setting, not necessarily, like how do I, I have one, I haven't Multiple had that settings. experience. I mean, we had people in a bar have these experiences, literally yeah. in a bar, surrounded by people. Our friend had just gotten back from meditation retreat. Okay, well, look. He I, puts it on, and he, within five minutes, is like having involuntary movements. Like, he's so deep in that he's having like light bursting through his head involuntary like movement. like he's dissociated from his body within five minutes you did and not tell me that this was possible with this uh, with the apollo wearable lots of things I, are possible i feel like i feel <laughs> like i'm <laughs> i feel like a, i feel like i'm doing it like a late night ad where i was like you won't believe it light will be blasting out of your head with the 45 percent off and it, apollo well, well and again this is not common right this is not an experience that just anybody can get to this is like a peak experience that you know our friend who we met in the bar this time had spent thousands of hours training to meditate to get himself to that point anyway, right? But when he used, it with, when he used Apollo at the same time, he was able to get there about f- four or five times faster. And, 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 and that's, so we, through, that's through vibrations on the skin that send signals of safety and kind of give you meditative frequencies that you experience in your skin. The, so what we do is we, we were sending frequencies to the body that are consistent with what the body, what the relationship between the heart and the rhythm talking about rhythm right disconnection is about losing touch with rhythm when you're talking about hari's hari's principles right talk about disconnection disconnection is about not being in touch with rhythm so when we're talking about meditation and sleep and and circadian rhythms and things which we're used to long a long time ago be guided by nature and the light cycles and all this stuff what we now what, what we see is that the body changes rhythm when it changes these different experiences. So the Apollo frequencies are based on the frequencies that you would normally enter or an expert meditator would norm their body would normally look like if they were meditating. When that expert meditator gets into a meditative state, there's a certain oscillation pattern of frequency between the heart and the lungs that you can measure with an EKG machine and with a respiratory band. And you can measure even more within brainwave, you know, EEG and pupillometry. And we've done all this and we see these patterns. And so we said, well, what happens if we feed those patterns back to you, right? So you're not in that state, but you want to be in that state. You want to meditate, you want to sleep, you want to focus. What if we feed that pattern of energy through vibration back to your body? Will your body feel that and use that to facilitate entry into that state? And it does. Because it knows that when it feels that, that that's what it feels like to be in that state. 
And so with meditators, that's basically what's happening is we send the frequency to them that is consistent with the frequencies that they, you know, the way that they, that their body's energy might feel when they're meditating. And then they feel it and they say, oh, this feels like I can let myself lean in and enter the meditative state more easily and more quickly because they feel like they're already moving along. It's, already, it's, like, it's like nudging them along the path. And I think the safety part is critical because when you are meditating or when you are sleeping, we are really vulnerable, right? When you're meditating, you're, you're kind of, you're present, but you're also inward. Maybe you're doing deep work. You're not necessarily aware of the environment around you. Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. When you're sleeping, you're certainly not aware of the environment around you. And so we're really vulnerable to threat. And so when you can tell the body that you're safe, it becomes much easier to quickly enter those states of vulnerability. And meditation is, and deep breathing, deep breathing is a way to enter meditative states. You know, it's something that we don't necessarily think about. We equate the two. The breathing signals safety to the brain by saying to the brain, I have time to focus on my breath for a moment. You can't do that when you're running from a bear, right? You can't do that when you're acutely threatened by danger for survival. So when you take that time to step away and say, I am safe enough to take this deep breath right now, or maybe a few deep breaths, then your body responds to that and then allows you to transition states more effectively by balancing through a balanced nervous system. And so Apollo was developed based on that understanding of how the body works. And then it can send you these frequencies in, in your moment, day-to-day life so that you can be have just that much smoother transitions between experiences and and have that much more resilience when dealing with stress and you know adjusting to these different things that we have going in our lives which are numerous and frequent and oftentimes distracting and there will be uh links to find out more about apollo in the show notes um i have two final questions here and um they're coming straight out of the life as a festival community so um having you on the show was definitely stirred up a lot of interest there's a lot of people with questions about depression a lot of people suffering from depression so um big shout out to the life as a festival group on facebook and your contributions here and um this is a piece that we need to talk about. And uh, Sam Weissman brought this up about what we can feed ourselves um, to give ourselves the best possible uh, robust mental health. And yes, there's the power of the way that we're thinking about things, but there's also, you know, our brain having all the things that it needs to work. And I'll just preface this question by saying that um, I take supplements. Mm -hmm. I don't take any antidepressants, but um, the supplements that I take, I take an omega-3, I take a B12, a methylated B12, um, to help my methylation cycle, which is um, the cycle that uh, actually creates the amino acids that then produce the neurotransmitters. Um, I, uh, I take uh, magnesium. I take uh, a couple of other just sort of vitamins. And then the two big ones that I take that I've no- noticed over time in my whole life have really affected my mood health had been um, the one that most partiers know, 5-HTP, People often take this after taking MDMA. And 5-HTP is actually the closest thing you can take to raw serotonin because it converts to serotonin in your system. The other one is SAMe. Um, and SAMe is also a naturally occurring um, amino acid in your system that um, I think is less well known how it functions. It is prescribed as an antidepressant in Europe. 
it's over the counter here. I've been taking, I, I take Sammy regularly and I go on and off 5-HTP. So I just want to mention in the context of this conversation in my own journey with depression that these supplements have been very valuable for me. Um, and then the final piece for my own nutritional health is that I've really noticed that no gluten makes a big difference in terms of my mood health. So I was wondering if you could just speak to, I think everybody's body's different, but a broad understanding, what should we eat? What supplements should we take? Or how should we find out what we, for our own bodies, should be eating and supplementing? So, uh, so I think the best place to start is, you know, to talk, to explain that the same, as you said, I think the same supplements are not the best for everyone. The same food is not the best for everyone. We all require different ingredients to make the magic happen in our bodies, you know, to get us to our best selves. Um, there are a lot of similarities between us, but again, everybody is individually slightly different. Um, you know, some of the, it's important to talk to somebody who knows about supplements because I think we're in a very supplement heavy society. And while supplements can help you if used properly, it's also possible to take too much and experience almost the same exact effects from taking too much as you had from taking too little. So uh, vitamin D is a great example. It gets overprescribed or overrecommended all the time. And the side effects of having too much vitamin D are almost the same as having too little. And so people wind up overdosing on vitamin D and then they're still feeling sad. And they, it's, it's I feel like I need to make a joke about overdosing on <laughs> vitamin D. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> well so the <laughs> let's let's not uh, so, <laughs> next time so the but the point is that <laughs> the point is that you can overdose on all of these things and, and overdosing i mean just take too much such that you get side effects so it's really important to talk to a nutritionist talk to somebody or you know probably a nutritionist more than a doctor because nutritionists have a lot more uh education about this kind of thing than most doctors do but really just to you know talk to somebody who's a professional and understand what supplements are best for you and how to dose them for you so that you aren't accidentally taking too much. I think one of the most important things out of everything that we've been talking about to take home is that the, these medicines, these supplements, the food, the uh, activities, things like Apollo, psychedelic medicines, they're all tools to help us recover. And so those tools have to be used properly or you're going to break the system. If you give the right tools to a bad mechanic, he's going to break your car. And if you give the wrong tools to a good mechanic, he might also break your car. So you really need to make sure that you have the knowledge and the tools aligned to use properly. Um, getting to the point about what things you can use nutritionally, I think the most important thing you mentioned gluten, it's important to figure out what is causing inflammation in your body and eliminate it. Uh, the most common things that cause inflammation are dairy that comes from animals, um, goat goat dairy is the least inflammatory of the dairies, but cow is the most inflammatory and that's what most of us drink or eat. So it's really important to at least, you know, for people who are having a lot of issues that might be associated with stress or inflammation, you know, or especially GI stomach stuff, uh, digestion stuff, which is very closely tied to the emotional nervous system through the serotonin pathway, it's really, really important to eliminate inflammatory foods. So I, I always recommend that people would eliminate most dairy, particularly all cow dairy. Um, and if you're going to, if you really have to eat dairy, eat uh, goat cheese or goat milk um, and do it so in limited quantities, at least for a little while. Gluten is something to try if you have inflammation with gluten um, or you notice, you know, you can eliminate, try eliminating gluten. I would say you know, soy is a huge one, actually, that most people don't think about. Soy is, 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 and, and dairy are probably the two biggest culprits for most people um, that they don't realize are causing them 
inflammation or um, GI belly digestion upset. Uh, and then the last ones would be, you know, just having try. And then once you eliminate all the inflammatory stuff, particularly, you know, once you get through the, get rid of the soy and you get rid of the, the cow dairy and you may or may not need to get rid of gluten. I, you know, I, I personally eat gluten and I'm fine. Some people need to get rid of it to feel, to feel better. But, um, once you figure out what is inflammatory and what is not, and you get rid of the inflammatory stuff, the goal should be to just try to eat a generally well-balanced diet of nutrients, um, that has some vegetables in there and some, you know, a little bit of protein. Does it have to be meat protein? But if you enjoy meat protein, have some meat protein, have some plant protein, but ideally try to eat food that is organic and non-GMO and doesn't have a lot of doesn't isn't pro- heavily processed and have a lot of contaminants or chemicals in it because you know when you're spending all this time eliminating natural infl- inflammatory agents like soy and dairy and maybe gluten you know what's the point of putting chemicals in your body you might as well get rid of those too um, so the so the idea being you know getting rid of all of this stuff that can that can contribute to us being ill uh, and also eating locally is actually really important because locally grown food has pot locally grown pollens and, uh, local and especially raw food. And when you eat locally, like honey, if you eat raw local honey and local food, you actually build up more allergen, more, um, uh, you build up more resistance to allergies in from things in your area, like the pollens. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's an, it's, these are old things that we are just not telling people. I didn't learn that in medical school. I learned that from you know, somebody's mom, yeah, but it's ancient wisdom is just, but then you look to be there out, but then you look it up and you realize it's something people have been doing for thousands of years. That's why that's part of the reason why eating raw honey is such a, is such a thing. Cause it's great for your immune system. It's great for your allergies and all different seasons. Um, so, so f- the food is critical and, and I think, you know, it's really important to just really focus on eliminating all the bad stuff and just trying to eat a balanced, healthy diet that doesn't have a lot of processed foods and a lot and ideally no chemicals and no artificial stuff. And once you do that, and you do that for a period of three to six weeks, you should notice a pretty substantial difference, you know, and then um, also also not too much sugar, right? Sugar's inflammatory. Keep, you know, sugar also feeds bacteria um, and increases our chances of getting of, of uh, taking, I say it prolongs our ability to recover from illness. Oftentimes you eat too much sugar. So you want to keep your simple sugars down. You want to keep your definitely no high fructose corn syrup. That stuff is absolutely terrible for you. Um, and, uh, and try to, you know, really focus on having like a, a balanced, a balanced natural diet. Um, oh, and mushroom. My favorite supplements actually are, are Stamets, yeah. Stamets seven and, and, uh, and and mushroom supplements of that because they're lion's mane they're yeah so they do stamet seven is seven different mushrooms and then he has the comprehensive blend which is 14 mushrooms and i haven't gotten sick into in like two years since taking those i mean they're incredible for people who have you know the immune system is directly connected to the stress response system which is connected to your emotional and mental health and it's connected to your gut and all this stuff and it's you know there is people have been studying mushrooms for a long time to help support immunity. And I know a lot of people who took them and I never really understood. And I started doing the research and there is a lot of evidence to support that these mushrooms can really dramatically improve our immunity. And that has a downstream impact on our mental and emotional health. Uh, and I can personally attest to it. They're amazing. And uh, you can buy them from Paul Stamets himself, or you can go find mushrooms naturally and integrate them into your diet. But 
Paul did a great job with the supplements and they're all organic and, and really well, well done. So that's always a great supplement to take too. So the last thing at the very end of the podcast, I just want to bring up, uh, there are people who have been listening throughout who have been listening really closely because they want to help. Uh, they want to help a loved one. They want to help a partner. They want to help a friend. Um, and I think there's so many wonderful things that you've shared that can help where that you can use to help a depressed person, uh, a person who's experiencing depression. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to try to push help onto another person. And one of the things that I think is most frustrating if you're trying to support someone who's suffering from depression is how stuck in a hole they feel and how difficult it is to reach them there. Um, all of the information you've given today is super helpful. But how do we how do we show up for those people in our lives that are suffering from depression? How, what is the appropriate way of, of really engaging to help pull them out? How should we hold space for them? How can we support the people in our lives who are suffering? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And a, that's a tough and important question. I think, I think that I actually learned this as much from my wife as I did from my training, which is that when somebody comes to you, and they have a problem or they're stressed out or there's something on their mind that's really bothering them. And you sit there and listen to them without waiting to speak, without waiting to offer a solution, without uh, thinking about anything else, just really listening to them, making eye contact, showing them that you're there for them, that you're present with them through what they're going through, what they're telling you about, and that you care genuinely. Um, that is probably the single most powerful thing that we can do for, for our friends and our family with depression. But but what about people who are suicidal people who we're afraid we might lose? Like, it's so hard to, to listen. I mean, yes, we need to listen, but what more can we do? How can we be sure that we're going to help these people that we're, that we're afraid might, might harm themselves? I mean, you can, you can never be sure that you, 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 again, like you said, you can't control somebody, right? You can't control somebody's actions. All you can do is let them know that you're there and that you're a resource for them and that they have hope. Let them know that there is hope, there is support out there, that they can get better, that you believe in their ability to get better, and that you'll be there for them whenever they need you. Obviously, you can't, we, we can't, you know, and I face this all the time with people I work with, you, you, there's only so much that we can do to help people overcome their struggle and ultimately if somebody is acutely suicidal somebody's actively suicidal and they're expressing you know intention and action toward hurting themselves or or even hurting others then there are things that you can do like you can file an involuntary commitment to have them brought into a place where they can get care and is that ideal in any way absolutely not you know you know bringing somebody into the hospital against their will is never fun but sometimes it is critically important to get somebody out of their funk and help them realize that the hospital is not a place that they want to be. Uh, And once they realize that and they realize that they do have a supportive community outside of the hospital that can help them get back on their feet, get whatever they want out of life, accomplish their goals, and that there are people there that they can lean on and that can help them work through and get the skills they need to be better, then people can get better. So I think you really, you know, you, you have, there, there's two, 
there's two different approaches. You know, obviously, we want to be there for everyone who is suffering. We want to be there for our friends and our family who are suffering as much as we can. It is ultimately up to them and up to us to heal ourselves. You know, we cannot force anyone to heal. And all we can do is be there for them and provide them with the resources and the knowledge and the hope and the faith that we can give them that to know that they can heal and that it is possible for them to do it right here, right now, right? By providing that knowledge and that comfort to them, you're giving them the safety, you're giving them the hope. And hope is the single biggest factor that contributes to people's ability to heal. If you don't have hope, it becomes a lot harder because you're forgetting. Hope never goes away. It's just something you forget about. But once you recognize that there is hope, all of a sudden it can literally turn everything around for you in your whole life. I mean, that's also that's a lot of what people talk about with their first MDMA experience is they say, I never knew that there was hope. And then I had this experience and all of a sudden the blinders were lifted off to me and I was like, oh, wow, I saw the world hopeful and bright-eyed with a future that is totally unknown and unpredictable, but I know that I'm in control of it. And that's just so incredible to see people's responses. They're in control of it because of hope, because they know that they can hope. And that gives them agency and mastery and control over their lives. And so if we can give do anything for our friends and for our family and people who are suffering, it's to, it's to be present with them and, and to listen to them and to give them hope that they can heal. And worst case scenario, maybe they have to, you know, take a few days off in the hospital at a retreat, meditation center, something. We got to take a little vacation. Everybody's got to take a vacation sometime. Everybody's got to take a break. But what we can do is we can be there for them and let them know that we're here for them whenever they need it and that they have resources. And so we end on hope. And Dr. Dave, you've given us so much hope today. You give me so much hope. And, you know, just personally, our work together has really given me a much broader sense of my own abilities to heal. And these ancient tools, gratitude and exercise and eating healthy, um, they really fucking work. They really do. They really fucking work. And you would have never said that. Like, how long ago was it? A few months ago when we met, you would have never said that, right? You were in complete denial. uh, Yeah, I was like, give me the pills. (laughs) I want to not feel the way I feel. But I... I, Which is not your fault. You know, you were were trained, practiced to to think about yourself and the world that way. And all of a sudden, you had the interrupt. You had an opportunity where you had hope and you said, I am going to hope that things can be different if done differently, Right. If I do things differently, I have hope that I can actually enact and manifest real change in my life. And you didn't. I couldn't do that for you. Right? That was you. And if you're listening at home, you can too. And um, grateful for you listening and sticking with us. Grateful for you, Dr. Dave, and sharing your wisdom. You're and yeah, I, I, it's been an honor to sit with you, and um, I'm, I'm very grateful. Likewise. I really appreciate you having me on your, on your podcast. Thank you for joining us on Life is a Festival. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support it by sharing it with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes, letting us know what you thought. If you'd like to keep up with me, you can visit my website, aimandarmstrong.com. That's E-A-M-O-N armstrong.com or Eamon Armstrong on your favorite social platforms. Thanks for tuning in. Together, we can make life a festival for everyone. See you on the dance floor.
Dr. Dave, how did the podcast go? That was much better. Yeah, this is our round two. Yeah. We, we did one, we did a first one that was um, a little bit less structured and um, more uh, in the space of my own vulnerability and my own journey, which is cool. Um, well, was, I thought it was great. I mean, it's hard also because we're doing something that for me is unprecedented. And I think for you is also kind of unprecedented, right? You've never had your, your psychiatrist on a show before. So the interview, the nature of the interview is very different because without boundaries for, for the material, you can literally talk about anything for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it's all fascinating, right? Cause there's endless material, but if, you know, so I think, I think what we did this time that was better was we, if we forced ourselves to, to really come up with a path well, and, 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 and that I, path was great. And I wanted to be sure that someone giving their time to listen to this was going to get robust, meaningful information at a reasonably rapid clip. Because I think one of the things that can happen when you're having a conversation you can get into the meticulous details and well, but what is this? And does this quite work this way and kind mm-hmm. of narrow into that? And I think we both quite effectively didn't do that this time. And we covered a pretty broad scope. Um, so yeah. That fuck was yeah. Yeah. Nice job awesome. us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Practice makes perfect. <laughs>